Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode was made possible by our top tier patrons, Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you'd like to support the show from as little as one pound a month and earn some cool benefits along the way, head over to Demystified by Ashley Styles on Patreon and follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod. It'll help the show out. Now, Back to your regularly scheduled programming. England, the 12th century. The country is divided as a great civil war splits the land. King Stephen and his rival, the Empress Matilda, battle for the throne, and the small folk suffer as a result. We lay our scene in the town of Woolpit, in East Anglia. Located near the Abbey of Bury St Edmunds, this was a densely populated area of rural England. But times are hard. The ongoing civil war has drained the area of its resources. Known as the Anarchy, this period has especially affected East Anglia, where rebel lords have accrued far more than their usual power and need to defend it with the lives of their people. Thus the devastation wrecked by the war hits close to home as several sets of forces battle for supremacy. The town of Woolpit is a small town, quaint, nestled in the woods. Its name is derived from the term Wolfpit a trapping hole used to catch wolves. But what the people of Woolpit would catch one day would surprise them, and many others. William of Newburgh, the chronicler, tells us the story. One day, during the harvest season, the villagers of Woolpit discovered two children, a brother and a sister, beside one of the wolf pits that give the village its name. But there was something off about these children. For one, they spoke a language that no one in the town could understand. For another, their clothes and mannerisms were strange and alien. For a third, their skin was bright green. The children were taken to the manor of a local knight, Richard de Calm. From there, he tried to feed them, but they refused any and all food. For several days, the children refused to eat, until they found some broad beans, which they devoured with a ravenous hunger. This went on for several weeks. The children ate nothing but beans, hardly spoke to others, and were generally quite difficult. But over time, they did adapt to eating other foods. This was around the time they started to lose their green colour. But maybe this wasn't for the best. The younger of the two children, the boy, became sickly, and soon after the two were baptised, he died. The sister, however, lived on. She learned to speak English, and what she told the people of Woolpit baffled them. She said they came from a place called St. Martin's Land. There, the sun never shone. It was always twilight. Everything was like she was, shades of green. Her arrival in Woolpit was equally strange. She had been herding her father's cattle in the Greenland with her brother when they heard the sound of bells coming from a nearby cave. As they went into the cave to follow the sound, they emerged near the wolf pit. As for the rest of her life, well, the girl apparently took a name. Agnes, one source tells us. She worked as a maid, but was considered impudent and unruly. She eventually married, and one source gives us the name of the husband, Richard Barra, a famous English scholar at the time, although that's not fully substantiated. And then, presumably, she died. Sometimes in history, the circumstances give us the story, 
like the Dancing Plague of Strasbourg, the exceptional hardships created the unusual event. Other times it seems to be the other way around, an event happens and the fallout of that event creates the new circumstances. But this story is a little hard to tell. Two children appear one day in a small town in rural England, populated but not a city. Their skin is green, they speak an unknown language, and apparently they only eat beans. They come from a twilight land, a literal twilight zone if you prefer, where everything is green like them. When one loses his colour, he dies, but the other survives. What do we make of this? Well, there are many ways to interpret this story. It's attested by several contemporary sources, so, to some extent, we're sort of sure that it did kind of happen, as much as we can be for things like this, but the explanations do vary. So sit back as we take a carriage ride through the countryside of East Anglia during the Anarchy, and look into the story of the Green Children of Woolpit. Today on Demystified we look at the story of the Green Children of Woolpit. The story plays out exactly as I described in the introduction. I cut nothing, I added nothing. Two children appeared one day sometime in the harvest season, that's September to October, sometime during the reign of King Stephen. We'll get to exactly what that means in a minute. These children, a boy and a girl, and apparently siblings, were green. They spoke a language no one could decipher, they wore clothes that looked strange to the people of Woolpit. They ate only broad beans for a time until they learned to eat other things, but the boy died. The girl survived, learned to speak English, wherein she told the people of Wilpit from whence she came. It was a place called St. Martin's Land. The sun never shone, it was always twilight, and everything was green, like her. She and her brother went into a cave one day following the sound of bells, speculated to be the bells of the Abbey of Bury St. Edmund, and arrived in Wilpit. Somehow. The girl got a job, took a name, and got married and lived out her life. The end. Storybook? Out of what storybook? I couldn't tell you. Before we look at the story itself, let's take a second to examine the context, as it's always important to the story. The Anarchy. So our story takes place sometime during the reign of King Stephen, Stephen I. Stephen was variously Count of Boulogne and Duke of Normandy, as well as Count of Blois, and a prominent nobleman in the court of King Henry I. Henry was the fourth son of William the Conqueror, and so had a relatively stable reign. The problem came when he died. You see, Henry had no sons. He did have one son, William, who died during a ship sinking known as the White Ship Disaster. Due to either a drunken crew or a storm, it's not exactly clear, 300 people died when the ship sank off the coast of Normandy, including the heir to the throne and a number of prominent nobles. This threw a spanner into the works of the succession as, despite having many illegitimate children, his only other legitimate heir via descent was Matilda, a girl. Now, in those days, a female monarch wasn't totally beyond the pale, but it was far preferable to have a male ruler, the reasons being many, predominantly issues of what was considered legitimate succession. There was also the sexist issue, of course, the idea that a woman couldn't rule, but King Henry didn't have those hang-ups. Matter of fact, he insisted that his daughter inherit the throne when he died. He made his nobleman promise to support her claim, including the very powerful Stephen, who was related to the king via his mother, the king's sister, and therefore, in some people's eyes, a more rightful claimant. Specific rules of succession were unclear in Western Europe at the time. In some parts of France, male primogeniture was becoming the norm, in which the eldest son necessarily inherits the title. 
It was also traditional for the King of France to crown his successor whilst he was still alive, making the intended line of succession relatively clear. This was not the case in England, where the best a noble could do was what Professor Eleanor Searle referred to as create a pool of legitimate heirs, leaving them to challenge each other after the death. One example of this would be the succession of Edward the Confessor, which led to the Norman invasion. No less than five claimants, Harold Godwinson, William the Bastard of Normandy, King Harald Hadrada of Norway, King Svein II of Denmark, and Edgar the Aetherling, all claimed the throne of England through one way or another. This problem was compounded by a series of unstable Anglo-Norman successions over the previous 60 years. William the Conqueror invaded England, but his sons William Rufus and Robert Curthose fought a war between them to establish the inheritance. Henry, who became Henry I, only acquired control of Normandy by fighting. There was no peaceful, uncontested successions after the Norman invasion. But when the time came to put up in 1135, Stephen argued that the preservation of order in the kingdom was more important than Henry's preferred successor, and seized the throne. Matilda fled to France. Stephen's early reign was marked by rebellions in England and Wales, largely successful, but each successive rebellion drained his resources and weakened his authority until Empress Matilda returned. In 1139, she invaded England, and Stephen, unable to contain this revolt, was faced with a civil war. The war itself was extremely back and forth, and the territory was split basically west to east, with Matilda in the west and Stephen in the east. Since at that time castle technology was on the up, the war was one of attrition. Raids, battles, sieges and skirmishes, all attempting to sap the other's resources low enough to be able to deal a killing blow. Mercenaries were a common sight on both sides as knights of all stripes looked to make a quick buck in this period of general lawlessness. At one point it looked like Stephen had lost. He was captured after the Battle of Lincoln. But when Matilda tried to take the throne, two things happened. Firstly, Stephen eventually escaped. Secondly, Matilda was chased out of London by an angry mob, as apparently Stephen was still popular in the capital. But Stephen's capture toppled his authority, and when the war resumed, both sides now had to contend with the various lords and barons who wanted to kneel to neither. In 1142, Matilda was almost captured, but escaped across the frozen River Thames. The fighting dragged on for years. In 1152, Stephen attempted to have his son Eustace named heir to the throne, but the church denied him. For their part, they wanted the fighting to end. Henry Fitzempress, the son of Matilda, reinvaded England in 1153 after they'd withdrawn to Normandy, which they'd captured, but when he landed, neither his forces nor Stephen's were keen to carry the fighting on. So a peace was made. Stephen would remain king, but Henry would take the throne after he died. As it happened, that would be one year later, and Henry would become the famed Henry II, first of the kings of the Angevin Empire. Needless to say, this period was one of chaos. Historians at the time described it as the period where Christ and his saints were asleep. But modern historians dispute just how much the label the anarchy describes it well. What one does have to consider is this. Wars in general are expensive. Continuous campaigning means farmers are away from their fields, resources get plundered, men get killed, families get torn apart, vast sums of money are borrowed and then not repaid. Wars are bad for business. Civil wars doubly so, because the only prize is for the victor and it's not much of a prize. In a war of conquest, the prize is the land you take. In a war of defence, your prize is getting to survive. In a civil war, you fight yourself, so everyone loses. This isn't always the case in civil wars. For instance, the end of the American Civil War brought the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, which freed the slaves. Undoubtedly a good thing. But from purely a medieval perspective, for a king, a civil war is bad. So this is where our story takes place. Sometime between 1135 and 1154, during a time of relative chaos and disruption. 
East Anglia particularly was badly affected after one of the prominent noblemen there, Geoffrey de Mandeville, the Earl of Essex, rebelled against the king. One problem was coinage. Since Stephen, Matilda, David I of Scotland, who had invaded the north, and various local lords were all attempting to increase their own power, they were all minting their own coins, so what exactly constituted legal tender was under serious dispute. Another issue was a system of royal forests, areas designated for the king's hunting that acted kind of like a wildlife preserve, went right out the castle window and a lot of forest was lost during this period, as was much game. Now, the story of the Green Children could just be folklore. It could just be some fantastical, nothing miracle from a time where people were looking for one, and that's that. That's certainly the perspective taken by historian Nancy Partner. Quote, I consider the process of worrying over the suggestive details of these wonderfully pointless miracles in an effort to find natural or psychological explanations of what really, if anything, happened to be useless to the study of William of Newburgh, or, for that matter, of the Middle Ages. End quote. But we are going to look at what happened, and here's why. For the longest time, King Richard III was considered to be a hunchbacked demon. This was largely due to his depiction as such in the titular play written by Shakespeare. Now, of course, this was chalked up for centuries to be a work of Tudor propaganda. Of course Richard wasn't a hunchback, they just said he was. Until, that is, we found the bones of King Richard. In a shocking archaeological turn, his bones were discovered under a car park and genetically tested. The king had severe scoliosis of the spine, which would have given him a hunchback. Whether his evil personality is true is another matter entirely, that can't be verified by archaeology. But my point is, sometimes it is worth looking at the explanations for the weird and the wonderful stories, because sometimes it turns out it's true, just not the way you expected. So let's take a look at the explanations for this story. William de Newburgh and Ralph of Cogshall, our two main sources for the event, were baffled by this happenstance. There's a lot of ways we can take this, so let's divide the explanations up. The first is the folklore account arguing the story is just folklore, based on elements within it. One example is the motif of the cave from which the children came. Caves being the entrance to spiritual worlds was a motif of stories of that time period and both before and after. Gerald of Wales, for instance, tells a similar story of a boy who, after escaping his master, encountered two pygmies who led him through an underground passage into a beautiful land with fields and rivers but not lit by the full light of the sun. But that motif, whilst existent, wasn't super common. There was also a possible Celtic connection, which we'll return to later, meant as an allegory for the relationship between the Anglo-Saxons and the Britonic Celts who lived in the land before them. Green is a prominent colour in Celtic mythology. Green spirits are considered generally quite powerful and quite good. The girl married a man from King's Lynn. Lane was a Celtic word apparently denoting something evil. So the good spirit marries the evil man. Whether this is a purely folkloric element or meant to have a greater significance, I can't say, but again, we'll return to that later. Some people do also ascribe the St. Martin detail to that as well. The children came from St. Martin's land, and the Feast of St. Martin was one of the days that was believed to have been a Celtic holiday before being ascribed a Christian feast day, according to some scholars. Then we've got the idea that the children were aliens. Now, if you know this podcast, you know my feelings on that matter, but I will discuss it because this account is far older than you'd think. The first suggestion of an extraterrestrial origin, albeit maybe not of the kind you thought, was 1621, when Robert Burton, an Oxford scholar, argued that the children fell from heaven. This was adapted in 1638 when the posthumously published The Man in the Moon, written by Francis Godwin, cites the green children as an example of the Lunars, people from the moon sent to Earth. In that story, the Lunars call their god Martinus, which could possibly explain the St. Martin connection. 
Now that work is speculative fiction, I just think it's very interesting how early it was written. Then in 1996, astronomer Duncan Lunan suggested the children were somehow teleported to Earth from a planet trapped in a synchronous orbit. A synchronous orbit is an orbit in which the orbiting object, like a planet, takes the same amount of time to complete an orbit as it takes the object that it is orbiting to rotate once. This would mean, Lunan argues, that between areas of extreme heat and cold, there would be a small band of twilight between the light side of the planet and the dark side. The children's green colour came from eating genetically modified alien food, much like a flamingo gains its pink coloration from the shrink and algae they consume. As much as it's a cool idea about the whole synchronous orbit thing, since teleportation has not been proven to exist, I'm going to shelve that theory until that day comes. Now we get to the historical theories. The first theory is that the children were Flemish. Large numbers of Flemish immigrants lived in England at that time and would continue to do so for centuries before and after. Flemish is a Belgian variant of Dutch, and the Flemish people had much trade with England, as the channel was right on both doorsteps. There did exist a settlement of Flemish fullers, cloth makers, in the village of Fornham St. Martin, just north of Bury St. Edmunds. Makes sense, right? Not only that, but at Fornham there was a battle during the reign of Henry II, just after the reign of King Stephen, wherein many Flemish were killed. The children could have been fleeing that, or maybe the anarchy that came several decades earlier, and stumbled upon the people of Woolpit, bedraggled, hungry, confused, and wearing strange Flemish clothes. Furthermore, their hunger could have also caused their green skin. Hypochromic anemia, historically called the green sickness, is caused by a decrease in the size of the haemoglobin in the red blood cells, leading to, amongst other symptoms, a decrease in the red pigment in them, caused by the haemoglobin, giving a green appearance. With a better diet, this condition disappears, for instance, when the children stop eating only broad beans. The death of the boy could have been this or some other disease, as was often the case in the Middle Ages. The girl, having survived childhood, then went on to live a normal life. It's one common misconception about the period. Childbirth and childhood were so perilous that it massively lowered the life expectancy. Sure, in general, a small cuts infection could kill you just like that, but if you made it past the age of 18, chances were you'd live a decent life, battles or other happenstance notwithstanding. Otherwise, their green skin could be attributed to the dye the Flemish cloth makers would have used, which could conceivably stain the skin if exposed to enough. Now, this story isn't without its problems. For one, it's unlikely that an educated man like Richard de Calne wouldn't have known the language was Flemish, that nobody in the area, nor any of the scholars who studied the event, put two and two together is hard to believe, especially since a. Flemish is a Germanic language not at all dissimilar to English, and b. the Flemish were common both in the area and in England in general. Possible, but unlikely. I also don't see the clothes being a problem, as it implies that Flemish fashion was so alien to the English sensibility that nobody would have made the connection. But in general, historian Derek Brewer puts it thusly, Quote, the likely core of the matter is that these very small children, herding or following flocks, strayed from their forest village, spoke little and, in modern terms, didn't know their own home address. They were probably suffering from chlorosis, the deficiency disease which gives the skin a greenish tint, hence the term green sickness. With a better diet, it disappears. End quote. There is, however, another historical explanation that we touched on earlier that the story is an allegory, or a literal telling, of Anglo-Celtic relations. Geoffrey Jerome Cohen proposed that the story was about racial differences and, quote, allows William to write obliquely about the Welsh, end quote. 
The Green Children are a memory of England's past and the violent conquest of the indigenous Britons by the Anglo-Saxons, followed by the later Norman invasion. William de Newburgh, one of our main sources, reluctantly included the story of the Green Children in his account of a largely unified England, which Cohen juxtaposed with Geoffrey of Monmouth's The History of the Kings of Britain, a book that, according to William, is full of, quote, gushing and untrammeled lying. If you've heard of Geoffrey of Monmouth, he's a very famous medieval historian who I believe we referenced earlier. Geoffrey's history offers accounts of previous kings and kingdoms of varying identities, whereas William's England is one in which all people are either assimilated or pushed to the boundaries Wales, Lancashire in the northwest, or Cornwall in the southwest. Cohen postulates that the Green Children represent a two pronged disruption of William's ideal of a unified England. On the one hand, they're a reminder of the differences between the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons, given the children's claim to have come from St. Martin's land, named for St. Martin of Tours. The only other time William mentions St. Martin of Tours is in reference to St. Martin's Abbey in Hastings, which was built to commemorate the Norman victory in 1066. On the other hand, the children also embodied the earlier inhabitants of the British Isles, the Celts, or the Britons, as they're often called post-Roman conquest. In this telling, the idea that the English were the natural masters of Great Britain wasn't a necessary conclusion, but the result of a rather ugly invasion and settlement. The boy, in particular, who dies rather than become assimilated, represents, quote, an adjacent world that cannot be annexed, an otherness that will perish to endure, end quote. Maybe he couldn't be assimilated, or maybe he didn't want to be assimilated and preferred to die. So whilst this isn't necessarily to argue that the children were Welsh, or any other kind of Britonic or Celtic, it argues that its inclusion in the histories is indicative of an unresolved tension within English society at that time. Perhaps there remained enough pockets of Brythonic culture that it was an issue that needed resolving, such as the Cornish, or perhaps it was simply a grappling with a difficult legacy. And at what a time, too! After the Normans did to the Saxons what the Saxons did to the Britons, perhaps the shoe being on the other foot caused a change in perspective for those looking into the story. So what was the mystery behind the story of the Green Children of Warpit? I like the Flemish explanation. Basically, it solves all of the problems of the story with a neat little bow on top. There are problems with it that I won't ignore, but the things which are problems are unlikely rather than impossible. I do, however, like the allegorical account. I don't necessarily believe that that's entirely what the writers of the time were thinking. It's possible, but I don't fully buy it. But it does interest me, especially seeing the rivalry of perspective between Geoffrey of Monmouth and William de Newburgh, or William of Newburgh, the competing visions of what England was. It's a perspective battle that continues to this day. After all, what is England? Is it this monolithic place made up of the English, a collection of stout yeomen who all go down the pub? Some people think so, but possibly not. There's been forever this idea of other people coming over here from generation to generation, but lest we forget that that's exactly what the Saxons did to the Britons, and the Picts to the Romans and the Romans to the Celts, and the Vikings to the Saxons and the Normans to the Saxons and the French and the Flemish and the Dutch and the Danes, just about everyone has had a go at settling England. As a result, when we talk about the English in both a modern and a historical context, we need to remember that despite how insular the island may seem, this is a land whose tapestry is woven of a thousand threads, all from all over the world. 
and as someone who has a little Celtic blood in me from my mother's side, I do have sympathy for the poor Britons. I've always thought it a cool hypothetical. What if the Celts had somehow survived to the modern day as a culture without the influence of the classical world, either via the Romans or later invaders and settlers? That's not an easy question to answer. Hell, even without just the Vikings, a massive chunk of our language, folklore, or even our cities aren't there. Does Christianity still come over, or are we still worshipping Lug and Kernanos or the Morrigan? Either way, though, that didn't happen, and the interplay between the settling culture and the settled culture is one that has played out all over history, the colonizer and the colonized. The chaos of the anarchy was the perfect time for a story like this to take root too, a time where people were looking for something to take their minds off the wanton destruction happening all around them, and the records got a little fuzzy. Is there a lesson for today's story? Follow your nose, I suppose. What I mean to say by that is that we could easily dismiss this story as just being a story. It's folklore, it's a bedtime story, it's nothing more and it doesn't help us historically. But I disagree with that. Even if we realise an account is being basically not true, that doesn't mean that its study isn't helpful. The YouTube channel Extra Credit has a great line in their series on mythology, I quote, Myths are not stories that are untrue. Rather, they are tales that don't fit neatly into the historical narrative that serve as the basis for a culture. End quote. This may not be true, but they're also not not true. There's always a little kernel of real truth inside them. A great example of this would be the evolution of the story of King Arthur. There was possibly a historical King Arthur who led the Britons against the Saxons during the 4 and 500s. The story begins life as a somewhat factual account of a Celtic leader who fought against Saxons and Angles, but then fades into the background as a largely Celtic myth until it's revived in the 12th century by Geoffrey of Monmouth and Christian de Troyes, as well as surviving poems from the Welsh and the Bretons. These accounts create what we call the Arthurian Romance, a genre with more fantastical elements like Lancelot, the Lady of the Lake, and the Holy Grail. Many of those elements are lifted straight from Celtic folklore. In the various tellings in the centuries that followed, different aspects of the legend were emphasised by different writers to fit cultural needs. Is courtly love your thing? Then play out the early stages of Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship. What about kingly virtue? Well, Arthur can take centre stage. Is perseverance your core tenant? Then the grail quest becomes the narrative. Want to emphasise the consequences of bad choices? Well, then talk about the fall of Camelot and the pseudo-death of Arthur. The variations of the story show the evolutions of the values of the storytellers, but throughout it you see the undercurrent of Celtic myth that refuses to go away, no matter how many layers of other cultural influence get piled on top of it. So we have a historical figure that it's based on, the culture the story comes from, and the culture the story is imported into. Along the way the details change and get shifted around, and you end up with a hybrid that reflects both the original telling of the story, as well as the values of the person telling the story at that time. But that'll do it for today, I think. So we close the book, for now at least, on the story of the green children of Woolpit. This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles, and today's episode was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles. Hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month, and follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.